the Lord and recognizing and removing high places. I don't know whether you've noticed as you read through Kings and Chronicles, the stories of the kings, <clears throat> that it uses the term high places again and again and again, and that is seemingly a measure of these kings' commitment to following God. Now, some of the kings were evil, and so they did nothing that pleased God, but then there was a bunch of kings that did what pleased God, except they didn't deal with the high places. The high places were places of worship for pagan gods that were established on high hills and mountains, and God had told the people to remove those, so we'll see that in a, in a minute. So uh, let me begin with just a passage from, from Second Kings that kind of summarizes the life of Hezekiah, and then we're going to be working through uh, his life a little bit from Second Chronicles 28 and following. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. I don't have the scriptures up on the on the screen, so I encourage you to open a Bible. So first of all, Second Kings 18, let me just read to you. It says, Hezekiah removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. All of those were pagan worship uh, devices or centers. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. So that's a brief, excellent summary of the life of Hezekiah, and we're going to look at a little bit of his life together. Hezekiah's name means strength of Jehovah or God is might. And that really summarizes well what characterized his life and his reign as a king. Well, what had God said about high places and other places of pagan worship? Deuteronomy 12, 2 and 3 says this, Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations worship their gods, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places. Wow, that's pretty radical stuff, isn't it? Why such radical instructions from God to his people? Well, the worship of these gods of the nations led to sexual immorality, to child sacrifice, to perversion, to fear, to deception, and much more. Child sacrifice was one of the regular practices that went on at these places of pagan worship, and Hezekiah's father was involved in that. So listen to this about the kings. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Amaziah did what was right. The high places, however, were not removed. Uzziah did what was right. The high places, however, were not removed. Jotham did what was right. The high places, however, were not removed. Jehoshaphat walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, 
were not removed. And then listen to this. And the people still had not set their hearts on the God of their fathers. Why did God say remove the high places? Because they were divided in their uh, allegiance, trying to worship God and the other gods at the same time. The Israelites, it says in 2 Kings 17, secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They worshiped the Lord, but also they appointed all sorts of other people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. Kind of like hedging your bets. Just in case God doesn't come through for us, we should have a couple of other gods handy to pray to. And that's what that was the problem that God was saying, you need to deal radically with this because you can't worship a bunch of different gods. Choose one. Joshua said, if you remember in Joshua 24, he said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. He said, if you want to serve the gods of the nations, go ahead, do that. Or if you want to serve God, do that, but you can't do both, so make a choice. And that's really what Hezekiah realized, and therefore his life testifies to his radical commitment. So king after king had done what was right in God's sight, but something was missing. There was still in the backyard or in the closet or behind closed doors or in a dark room or on a hilltop things that were grieving God and giving the enemy an opportunity to work. Paul said in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Can we expect the Spirit of God to pour out his grace and power among us if we are grieving him? And so the kings were going through the motions of worshiping God, but all the while they were not dealing radically with the things in their lives, their city, their nation, that God had said, you need to deal with these things. <clears throat> year after year, this went on and nothing changed. There were very specific instructions from God that were being ignored. Well, we can't expect God to move in power as long as we're allowing in our lives, our homes, our eyes, our ears, our minds, our calendars, things that grieve God that Scripture says he hates. We're going to look in a minute at just a few of the things that God says that he hates. I don't know if you, whether you've noticed, but there's a number of things that it says in Scripture, God hates this or he detests this. And I think it's crucial that we recognize that. We need to realize that the things that God talks about that he hates are the things that drove the nails through the hands of Jesus and hung him there. And therefore, it's not a matter of, well, I probably should deal with that. I will someday. Rather, Jesus gave his life for these things that grieve his spirit to set us free and bring us into a life of joy and freedom and overcoming life, as Jesus said he came to give. Well, let's look at Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29.1. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah daughter of Zechariah. Now, when it mentions the wife or the mother, uh, it's usually because there was something significant about that person. Generally speaking, in the genealogies 
it doesn't talk about uh, the, the women. Uh, uh, sorry about that, women, but that's the way it is in the recording of the genealogies. But when it does mention it, it's usually for a good reason. So Zechariah, sorry, so Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David. Now, David was not his biological father. It's talking about his forefather David, because uh, David was the godly king predecessor uh, against whom they are measuring all these kings. So let's look at some background to Hezekiah's life. Who was his actual father? Well, Second Chronicles 28, 1, jump back one chapter, and it says there, Ahaz, and that was Hezekiah's father, was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, Hezekiah was nine years old uh, uh, to 25 years old during the reign of his father. So Ahaz, verse 2, walked in the ways of the king of Israel and also made cast idols for the worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Hinnom and, listen to this, sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations. Sacrificed his sons in the fire. Apparently, God protected Hezekiah from being sacrificed and raised him up to lead the nation into reform and renewal and revival. So Hezekiah was growing up in a nation where pagan worship was epidemic. And you'll see just the next verse that we read will mention that. An epidemic of pagan worship, and it was brought on by his own father. So where on earth did Hezekiah get this passion for God and this radical commitment to following God? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. So back to Ahaz, verse 4, he offered sacrifices, burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. In other words, all over the place. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. So where on earth did, did Hezekiah get this passion for God? Well, for one thing, Hezekiah undoubtedly would have known about, about his great, 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 or whatever, grandfather David, and how he had led with righteousness. But also, uh, Uzziah's great-grandfather was, uh, uh, sorry, Hezekiah's great-grandfather was Uzziah, Second Chronicles 26, 3 to 5. You don't have to turn there. But um, he was 16 years old when he took over. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as long as Zechariah was living and instructed him in the fear of God. After Zechariah died, Uzziah turned away from God. But most of his life, he lived a godly life. So this was Hezekiah's great-grandfather. And then his grandfather, Jotham, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father, Uzziah, had done. 
So he had godly uh, forefathers. And then his uh, mother that it mentioned there, Abijah, was the daughter of Zechariah, the man who instructed Uzziah, his, grand, his great-grandfather, in the ways of God. And so apparently uh, Abijah followed in the righteous ways of her father and walked with God in spite of being married to an evil, ungodly man. So let me just encourage you, if you happen to have found yourself uh, in a marriage where your spouse is not godly, or worse yet, is evil, this woman lived in such a home, and apparently, through her, her amazing influence, brought up a son who, at 25 years of age, took over the reins of the kingship and dove right in immediately to pursuing God. Well, this is what it says back in chapter 29, verse 3. Here's what Hezekiah did. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. The first month of the first year of his reign. Well, we look at politicians, and a lot of them make all sorts of promises. Some of them dig in and carry through with those promises right away. Um, others... Forget about them completely. Well, Hezekiah, uh, it would appear that Hezekiah was, was grieving under the reign of his evil father at the godlessness of the nation. And so as soon as he had a chance to do something, he did it immediately. He brought in the priests and Levites, verse 4, assembled them in the square of uh, on the east side, and said, Listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They didn't burn incense or present burnt offerings at the sanctuary, to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. And then let me just jump down to verse 10. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him. He's speaking to the priests and Levites and to serve him and minister before him and to burn incense. Well, there is a lot of teaching around that says that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. Well, there is some truth to that, but let me say this, that grace is found all over the place in the Old Testament, and I'm going to read a scripture to you that speaks about that. And in the New Testament, the same God the God of grace and wrath at sin is the God of the New Testament. Yeah, but you might be saying still, well, a God of wrath? I don't want a God of wrath. Well, think about this. For those of you who are married, how would you feel about your spouse saying that they love you and then regularly having affairs with all sorts of other partners? Well, that's precisely what was going on in Israel with the high places. 
people saying, God, we love you. We want to worship you. We want to come to your temple. And then going off and worshiping other gods and having affairs with them. When you hear of deep injustice, for example, human trafficking or sex slaves, does it make you angry? I hope so. Well, would we want a God who did not get angry at such things? We do want a God of grace, and we have a God of grace. But we also have a God who is angry at sin and evil and grieved over those things. In the Old Testament, this is what Ezekiel says, the Lord says through Ezekiel, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. But I found no one. So now I will pour out my fury on them. What was God wanting to do? He wanted to give grace to these people who were sinning terribly. But the natural course of, of the laws of spiritual life, just like there's a law of, of gravity and laws in the physical realm, so there are spiritual laws, and they don't change. If you jump off the balcony, you will come down. If you disobey God, there are spiritual laws that come into practice, but thankfully, there is also a Redeemer, and there is a God of grace and mercy who looks to give mercy and grace to his people. And so in, in this case in Ezekiel, he was trying to find someone who would be an intercessor and who would say, God, please have mercy on these people. In spite of their sin, would you have mercy? And we see examples of that numerous times. Phinehas and Moses and others interceded and turned away the wrath of God from uh, its natural course against sin. Well, in the New Testament, uh, let me read to you about this God of grace, but also a God of wrath. Uh, <clears throat> Romans 8, 1 to 6 says this, Now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. So now every righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled through the anointed one living his life in us. Grace, outpoured grace. But back at the beginning of the same book of Romans, this is what it says, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And I say, thank God that he is not just a God of grace. He does not ignore evil and sin. If that were the case, it would be a grievous world to live in if we didn't have a God who hated sin and who was angry over sin. But Mercy triumphs over judgment. Back to Second Chronicles 29.10, back to Hezekiah. Now he said, I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, don't be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you. Well, who has God chosen today to stand before him and serve him? Well, the word tells us in numerous places that we are the people of God, that the church 
is his bride, that we are being built together as a temple for the living God. So the Levites set to work, verse 12, and when they had assembled their brothers and consecrated themselves, verse 15, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord. The word consecrated means to make or declare sacred, to keep oneself apart or separate, to devote irrevocably to the worship of God by a solemn ceremony. And so the Levites, who had not been devoting themselves to God for many, many years, now Hezekiah called them together and said, come on, let's get it together. Let's get right with God. Let's deal with things so that he will be pleased with us and will honor us. Joshua had said to the people when he was getting ready to lead them across the Jordan River, he said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. In other words, prepare the way. If you want God to do amazing things among you tomorrow, then consecrate yourself today. Set yourself apart for him. The word extreme is used a lot in our current uh, uh, world. They talk about extreme sports, for example. Well, if we want God to do extreme things, then he's asking us for extreme devotion to make a radical commitment to follow him. So the priests, verse 16, went into the sanctuary to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they found in the temple of the Lord. They took it and carried it to the Kidron Valley. They began the consecration on the first day, and then 16 days later they finished it. Well, we don't have a temple now, so how does this apply to us? Well, I don't think it means, uh, of course, we should keep the church building clean, but I think there's something more important than that. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God brought, bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. And then uh, later, or sorry, earlier in that same chapter, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I'll be, with, be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Clean out the temple, in other words, God is saying. Well, back to Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, Second Chronicles 28.3. You don't need to turn there, but it says this. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Hinnom and sacrificed his son in the fire following the detestable ways of the nations. And he had desecrated the temple. Well, the Levites now brought out to the courtyard everything unclean. A question for us, how radical are we willing to be in cleaning up the temple of God? That is, our body, our life, where the spirit of the living God dwells. Is there anything in my life in this temple of the living God that God hates that is detestable to him? And I want to challenge us to think not just of what we personally uh, take part in, but perhaps also what we entertain ourselves 
Is it okay to avoid things that God hates but then entertain ourselves with them? Well, the Lord loves those who pursue righteousness. The Lord delights in kindness, justice, and righteousness, Jeremiah 9. Proverbs 12, the Lord detests lying lips but delights in men who are truthful. That's a significant verse for our day and age. The Lord detests lying lips but delights in men who are truthful. Those who love violence, his soul hates. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. Six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Understanding what God loves and what he hates, Paul says, pursue righteousness and flee from temptation. They are kind of radical words, aren't they? Extreme words that call us to not a casual approach to the Christian life. In Ezekiel 9.4, it says, Go through the city and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in the city. Do we grieve and lament over the detestable things that go on in our culture, or have we become accustomed to them? The people in Hezekiah's day had become accustomed to all of this pagan worship. They walked by on every street corner, it says, and in every town. They walked past these pagan shrines of worship and had become used to them. They'd just become a normal part of daily life. Have we become used to the things that grieve God, or do we grieve and lament over them and cry out to God for them? Well, the Levites came back to Hezekiah in verse 18 and said, we've purified the entire temple. Verse 19, we have prepared and consecrated all the articles. And then verse 20, early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. And they brought scads and scads of sin offerings and sacrifices to make to the Lord. And in verse 23, it says, the goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. Why did they do that? Because they were acknowledging their own sin and their own need for cleansing and forgiveness from God. They laid their hands on these offerings. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering, and as they did, verse 27, singing to the Lord began also. Verse 28, the whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang. Verse 29, when the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshiped. The king. This is the king, friends. He didn't say, okay, everybody, kneel down. He said, come on, let's kneel down before our God and acknowledge our need of him. And so the king, Hezekiah, knelt down before the people, all the people, humbling himself in the presence of the people. 
and inviting everyone else to do it, and it says they did. And so it says at the end of verse 30, so they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshiped. They brought sacrifices. What is a sacrifice? It costs something, something that's difficult. What are we willing to sacrifice in order to see the power of God released in our lives and in his church? The whole assembly bowed in worship, an active, obvious action of worship. Their bodies were participating in what their hearts and lips were saying they were committing themselves to. What flows out of our hearts should impact the way we live and act. So they sang praises with gladness because joy <clears throat> is a natural outflow of true worship of God. When we humble ourselves, consecrate ourselves, choose to worship in a way that includes humbling ourselves before others, as Hezekiah did, then the joy of the Lord becomes ours and worship begins to flow out of our hearts. Well, then Hezekiah said, verse 31, you have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. Again, just an overflow. They made a decision to seek God, to deal with things, to cleanse things, to consecrate themselves, to worship God, to humble themselves. And now, as a result of that, their hearts begin to rise up with joy. And when they're asked to contribute, they just willingly start contributing. The animals consecrated amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. People poured in their offerings and gifts and sacrifices. The Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than the priests had been, verse 34. Well, how conscientious have you and I been in consecrating ourselves, setting ourselves apart from anything that would grieve God so as to serve our Redeemer and prepare the way for him? So the service of the temple of the Lord was established. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. How did it get done so quickly? Well, there was this response that said, yes, we need God. You can guess that there were many people like Hezekiah who were grieving over the state of their nation and the godlessness and pagan worship that was all around them. And so when the opportunity came and the king calls them to seek God, they say, yes, we've been waiting for this. Finally, we can seek God. Let's go. We don't have to worship at these pagan shrines anymore. Let's get the temple ready. Let's consecrate ourselves. And so there was this joy and gladness and quick response which brought the blessing of God upon them. Well, then, verse, then chapter 30 this was the outcome of this. So Hezekiah then had an idea. Let's invite everybody to come and celebrate the Passover and worship together in uh, Jerusalem. Well, it was a great idea, but, but I want us to understand a little bit about the background. So anyway, Hezekiah sent word, verse 1, to all Israel and Judah, wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, 
inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord and celebrate the Passover. Verse 3, they hadn't been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. So they sent this proclamation through Israel and through Judah. Verse 6, the couriers went out and took these letters and invitations, inviting people to return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, instead of giving place to other gods. Well, it says there, the couriers went, verse 10, from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. Why would that be, I wonder? Well, just a few years back in Ahaz's life, because of his evil ways, God uh, allowed uh, other kings to conquer Judah, including the king of Israel, their brothers. The king of Israel took, uh, killed in one day 120,000 of Judah's soldiers and took captive 200,000 women and children and plundered their homes and carried this all the way uh, back to Israel. Now, thankfully, there was a prophet in Israel who said, you can't do this. You're bringing the wrath of God on us. Send them back. And so they did. They let them go and gave them the plunder to take back home. But nevertheless, they had already killed 120,000 of the fathers and husbands. And so now Hezekiah has the gall to invite the Israelites to come and worship with them in Judah, the people that they'd been fighting against. And so people, you can imagine, were saying, are you kidding me? They killed my father and my grandfather. They carried away my brother and sister into exile. Thankfully, they let us go. But this had been going on a few years prior. So Hezekiah grew up under that happening, and the people around him, probably most of them, had experienced that. And so, not surprisingly, many of the people scorned and ridiculed them and said, there's no way I'm going to worship with them. Now, has anyone ever experienced that in this day and age? Of course, of course not. Um, but uh, perhaps it's a lesson for us when we face situations where we're encountering people who want to worship God, but maybe they've grieved us. Well, Ahaz was given into the hands of the king of Israel because of his evil ways. But then it says in verse 11, and here is a key, nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went up to Jerusalem, and the hand of God was on the people of Judah to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered. So a large crowd gathered, and verse 14, they removed the altars in Jerusalem, cleared away the incense altars, that is, for the pagan gods, and threw them into the Kidron Valley. So more cleaning up, more uh, consecration. Many of the people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves. In other words, they weren't really ready. So Hezekiah prayed a prayer and said, God, these people are not really ready, but they want to worship you, would you please meet them in spite of their failures and sin? And it says, 
the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. So they worshiped for seven days, celebrating the Passover. And there was great joy. And at the end of that time, somebody said, why should we stop now? Like, let's keep on. This is great. This is, we haven't had this in decades. So let's do it again. So they did it again for another seven days, uh, along with the, they rejoiced, it says, along with the priests and Levites. There was great joy in Jerusalem. And then finally, here was the outcome. Second Chronicles 31.1, when all this ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah. They smashed the sacred stones. They cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And after they had destroyed all them, they went home. Wow. Isn't that cool? So what led to this radical commitment to cleaning up the land? Well, it, it began with a choice. It began with a king who said, we've got to get God back in the middle of things here. We've got to deal with the things that are grieving him. We've got to deal with these high places that none of our, our forefathers have been dealing with. Good kings, but nevertheless, they didn't deal completely with what God told them to deal with. These high places and Asherah uh, poles, etc., that they carried away, they'd been there all along. They'd been walking by them, not noticing them. Now, having come out of the presence of the living God, worshiping him for two weeks, then they began saying, oh my goodness, look at all these altars. Look at all the Asherah poles. Look at the high places. Why haven't we been doing something about this? And so they cleaned up the land. Well, I want us to just close with a couple of questions. How serious am I about preparing the way of the Lord? Am I like many of the kings, doing mostly what is right, but allowing a few things that God hated in their life and nation, things that God had said, deal with these if you want my blessing? Or are we like Hezekiah, radically committed to dealing with everything that grieves God. As he said to the Levites, we're going to make a covenant with God so that his anger will turn away from us. Am I taking part in what God permits or am I pursuing what God delights in? Will you say with me, Lord, I want, to be, I want it to be said of me as it was of Hezekiah, and this is what it was said of him, there was no one like him either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. Well, perhaps you would like today to say, Lord, I want to consecrate myself to follow you wholeheartedly with my life, to clean out everything that grieves you, that defiles this temple in my body and my life. Here, Lord, I'm yours, all yours, not halfway, all the way. Show me any high place that needs to be torn down so that I can really please you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know without a doubt that you are a child of God, that he is your savior, that uh, he has redeemed you and called you by name and made you his own child. If that's the case, you can today say, God, 
I need you. I want to walk with you. I want to please you. I want to honor you. Or maybe you're here and you know Jesus as your Savior, but you've never really said, God, I'm all in. I'm all yours. It's all your way and not mine. And so let's just pause for a moment quietly as we close. Father, gracious Father, thank you that you are a God of mercy and that mercy triumphs over judgment, that your heart longs to bless your people, that you desire to pour out your grace upon your people. Lord, thank you that as Ezekiel shows us, you look for ways to turn your wrath away and give mercy and grace instead. And so thank you, Jesus. Thank you that in you there is hope, in you there is life. But Lord, we live in a culture, in a nation that's in deep, deep trouble. Show us, Lord, how to prepare the way. And especially lead us initially, first of all, to preparing the way in our own hearts, our own temple, where you dwell by your Holy Spirit. Give us the courage, Father, the strength, and the willingness to humble ourselves as Hezekiah did and say, Lord, we really need you. Our nation has been in deep, deep trouble. We've been worshiping other gods and your anger has come against us. There's been war and trouble and difficulty as a result of that. We need you, Lord. So we're here today saying we need you. Lord, we need you. If anybody else wants to join me and just kneel before the Lord and